Welcome to Ashes with Ash, a storytelling podcast from your tobacconist community, bringing you stories of life behind the cigar. Join me on this adventure to find the coolest cigar lounges, smoke some lovely cigars, and seek out the most incredible stories from our cigar lounge friends, owners, and customers. Let's tap into these untold stories with a little smoke and ash. Welcome back, everyone. I am geeking out about my guest today. (laughs) The best-selling author, Eliza Vancourt, is here to talk about her book, The Women's Guide to Claiming Space. As you'll hear, this book and this episode is for women and men on how to gain confidence and claim your space and how men can support women in the workplace and in life in general. I could have talked to Eliza for hours. She's such an incredible speaker. She's gone through so much trauma and has come out with such resilience and intelligence. She's truly an inspiration. I hope you all enjoy. La Fine Lam. Have you seen their new punch bracelets? Wow, gorgeous, 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 and handsome, handsome, handsome. These bracelets double as a punch cutter, so you can go every day with style and always having to avoid biting the tip of your cigar off to get all that tobacco stuck in your teeth whenever you don't have a cutter, because you will always have one now right on your wrist. What a beautiful concept. Their other products are so badass too, the knife cutters, oh my god, when I worked in a cigar lounge that carried them, no lie, I would just stand and stare at the collection so often. (laughs) They're such great quality and each one is so unique, even some of them have engraved blades with different countries and city skylines. Check them out at lafinelam.com to order. It's spelled L-E-S-F-I-N-E-S-L-A-M-E-S, a.k.a. The Fine Blade. And don't forget to follow them on Instagram. La Fine Lam, L-E-S-F-I-N-E-S-L-A-M-E-S. Enjoy it. All right, how are we doing? I'm okay. I mean, all things considered in the world. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So many things happening. Thank you so much for jumping on with me. Absolutely. I I am actually quite thrilled. I'm also going to pull this over here. I'm thrilled to be here with you, truly. It's a good time to have conversations. It's an important time to have conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the industry I'm in, you know, I'm in the cigar industry. It's very like male dominated kind of world. Maybe yeah. not so much anymore. There's so many women that are getting into it and that have claimed their space and we're getting there. And a lot of men have been more accepting over the years, depending where you are. Like I'm in New York mm-hmm. City, which is very cultured. It's a lot different. They're a little more accepting here, but small towns like my hometown, it can be a lot more difficult. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, for women and growing the ladder, getting to the top, really, or even just smoking cigars in general. 
yeah. and look at you <laughs> like you're crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely a male dominated profession for sure. Yeah. So I thought it was really important to have a voice on here that could explain feminism and what it is and why it's so important and how men can help and everything yeah. like that, you know? I think that's great. I mean, I think right now a lot of men are wanting to find ways to help. And so it's important. Um, I know there's some people who feel like men shouldn't be involved, but I feel like, you know, you need every oh. person who cares to be involved. <laughs> Definitely. I agree. So tell us a little bit about your book, A Women's Guide to Claiming Space, and why was it so important for you to write this book? Uh, well, I had a, a pretty traumatic childhood, actually. And so I, because of my childhood, I really started to conflate invisibility with safety. And I decided if I could make myself invisible, everything would be fine. Um, and then I sort of figured out that being invisible isn't safe. It's quite dangerous. So I started to sort of claw my way out of that. But, and I became quite good at it. So I went to school for political science. I worked with politicians. Then I actually went back for acting, ended up opening an acting school. And then in 2014, I had a car accident that um, wow. severely limited my ability to communicate. Wow. And I had to, yeah, it was awful. And I had to rebuild my communication brick by brick by brick. And that process of rebuilding my communication helped me sort of break down the HTML of communication. And I realized while I was relearning everything that there were certain qualities that certain people had that allowed them to just move through life in a more empowered way. And I realized that also a lot of communication coaching is focused on men. So it doesn't, sometimes it can be harmful. Some of the advice for women just doesn't apply to men. So I started giving all these talks and women would follow me to the bathroom. You know, the women's <laughs> bathroom is a very sacred and wonderful place. And they'd follow me to the bathroom after the talks and they would ask me questions. And it was the same questions. And so I started to think, oh, why do we have to have these conversations in the bathroom? Well, because some women don't feel safe having them somewhere else. And I thought we really need to take everything that I've talked to these women about in the bathroom and bring it into the sunlight. And so what I figured out in the end is that there were five things that help people claim space. And those five things, actually, if you took all the conversations I had in the background, you could dump all of those conversations into one of those five categories. And no one had ever written a guidebook that was just you know, for women uh, about all of the things. I mean, you know, the book talks about posture, talks about imposter syndrome, and it talks about race. You know, there's nothing it doesn't cover. And I thought it was about time that we had a book that was easy and digestible that people could enjoy and was fun, but would teach them how to claim their space. Yeah, for sure. I loved in the book what you said about posture, because so many people are like, you know, just put your back straight, you know, do you, you need to have good posture? And they just kind of say it, but you really teach how to do it. And I love that. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I had a lot of fun with those drawings. They're so cheesy. I love it. <laughs> and I wanted, I was trying to make fun of those old drawings. People were like, Hey, do the drawing. So I, I was like, okay, I'm going to get as cheesy as possible with these drawings. And we had a lot of fun. I like the Madonna cone bra. That's my favorite. I love it. Yes. So good. <laughs> so much fun. Too good. much fun with those cartoons. <laughs> so explain for the audience who may not know, what is feminism? 
Well, feminism has really morphed over the years. Um, and I, I'll give you the most basic definition. Mm-hmm. I, I believe every single human being should be a feminist. And if you aren't, then you should examine yourself maybe a little, because to me, feminism is simply the idea that women should have equal rights and opportunities and be treated equitably. So if that's a big problem for you, then, you know, then at that point, I really don't have much to say because I'm not going to try to convince people women should be treated equitably. The problem with feminism is that it's been very demonized. Mm -hmm. And so people have these ideas and it's very, it's a really brilliant tactic because if you say that someone who is a feminist is all of these negative things, then what do you do? You actually neuter her ability to go out and look for equal rights and opportunities because God forbid she's called a feminist or asked to be treated equitably because God forbid she's called a feminist. So I think we need to really reclaim that word. I think it's really important. On the other hand, feminism historically has been quite racist, frankly. Um, And so we also have a lot of damage control that we need to do and apologies and listening to women of color Uh, because, you know, we, I mean, you look at the speeches about suffrage and some women literally just said like, do you really want black people voting? No, you should let women vote, AKA white women. And that kind of stuff, you know, it was putting our needs. We were kind of, it's that in-group fighting that obviously a lot of targeted groups do and it just hurt everybody. So we have a lot of, that's why a lot of black women say womanist because they just are so um, kind of disappointed in the feminist movement, understandably so. Wow. Yeah, exactly. How would you explain what toxic masculinity means and how it doesn't exactly or versus man hating? You know what I mean? Um, Well, I don't think toxic masculinity has anything to do with man hating. And I think that's really, really important to, um, to not conflate those two things. Toxic masculinity actually hurts men as well. I mean, it's this idea that you have to be, you know, these very rigid normative gender roles. And often it also involves oppressive behavior toward women. Um, But, you know, some toxic masculinity is like, you shouldn't cry. If you're a boy and you cry, then you're a, you know, you're this, you're that, whatever. And unfortunately, what that does is it teaches men that they can't be vulnerable, which is ridiculous. It's similar to teaching women they can't be angry. And I actually think that one of the problems with relationships is that we are not addressing feminism in our relationships. And so, and part of addressing feminism is like telling your partner, it's okay to show your feelings to me. You know, I want to hear your most vulnerable feelings. That doesn't make you less of a man to me. So... Um, but when men can be very toxic, it's when they're basically using their their male privilege to subvert another person's needs or make another person small. And, and that is clearly quite toxic. I mean, it's of not course. healthy. And I don't think it's good for the person doing it either. As someone who's had moments where I've done things that are kind of clumsy with race, um, when my friends tell me, hey, that's not cool, and I change my behavior... It doesn't, I mean, I'm glad they told me and I want to hear it, but it doesn't feel good to do things like that. It's good to change and learn and grow. For sure. Exactly. And what can men do to support feminism and women empowerment? Well, there are so many things men can do. I think the number one thing that men can do is listen to women when they explain something to them and say like, this was hard for me. Can you believe this? I always say that I think it would be very challenging actually to be a white man 
in some ways, in some ways, because they're the only group that has to use their imagination to imagine what it would feel like for someone to hold something against them as a group, because they're a member of a group that they simply cannot change. Mm. Every other group has a touch point where we can go, well, I don't experience being pulled over because I'm black, but I do experience men making me feel unsafe on the street. Hmm, okay, I, so they have a hard time believing that I'm feeling unsafe. So I can see why I'm having a hard time understanding just how endangered black people feel. Huh, okay. Men don't have that. They have to do an imagination experiment. And so I think in some ways we should cut them a little bit of slack and, and really, you know, I think the solution to that is storytelling and really explaining, you know, this is what I experienced. One of my best friends, he's a very um, kind of burly guy. He's on my TikTok a lot. He's a military vet. He hunts, you know, he, he, he never misses a Bills game. <laughs> and he's like, he's my little brother from another mother, Alec Osinski, amazing guy. Um, and, you know, I, he was reading my book before it was published because I wanted to hear his perspective on it before I published it. And he said, there's a part where I said, you know, I pretend to be on the phone when I walk to my car sometimes if it's a dark night because I find that men will leave me alone more and I'm less likely to be harassed if I pretend I'm on the phone. And he was just, in, you know, when he read that, he was like, seriously, do you do that? And I said, yeah, women do that. And he was oh, like, yeah. Yeah, totally. He was like, I can't imagine living that way. And and that kind of thing, I think, is more effective than throwing out a lot of statistics on uh, violence against women. Because I think that it's hard for any of us to think about the global problems. Like, I'm going to cry more if I see one child who is hungry than if I get told there's a famine. I feel upset there's a famine. My brain tells me it's terrible. But it doesn't, it doesn't hit me in the heart the way seeing a child starving in front of me, one child as opposed to thousands. And so I don't think we can hold it against others that maybe they are having trouble understanding what some of these statistics mean because, you know, they haven't experienced it. So I think communication and storytelling is huge because I, I personally believe that most people want to do good. Most people truly want to do the right thing. They just are afraid they're going to mess it up or they feel defensive. And so they just don't try. And I, I think that we need to be constantly, to me at least, we need to be putting ourselves out there and really saying to people, listen, you know, come in. <laughs> I will tell you about this stuff. I'm not going to shame you if you don't understand right away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this past week or few days has been really epic for women. and. Yeah. For women that have already, I mean, for everyone, but I'm wondering about for women that have already claimed space and feel the power that they should, these past few days have mm. been so demeaning and diminishing and yeah. just really difficult. How, yeah. What advice would you give to claiming your space back because I feel like a lot of women have probably declined from it a little bit or they could have. Mm -hmm. What advice well, do you have for that? Well, I think everybody approaches this differently. And one thing I'm noticing um, is a lot of people criticizing other people with how they're handling this. And I, I think it's actually a trauma for many people. And what I tell people is, you know, when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening, mm. uh, I, 
asked friends, I called maybe 30 to 50 friends. So it's not the biggest sample ever, but I, I have a lot of, I have a pretty big network and I was, I was writing something. So I wanted to ask as many people as possible. Did you or someone, you know, ever uh, get sexual, sexually assaulted? Like, have you been sexually assaulted or do you know a woman who has? There wasn't a single woman who did not say either I did or someone I know. I didn't ask people to say which, but right. every single woman had been close to it in some way. Either they, it happened to them or they knew someone who it had happened to. There's so much underreporting. I mean, the, the number, and then I, the second question I asked is how many of those people reported? One one woman had reported and she reported because she was attacked in college and she was fighting off this man and two people came by and heard her fighting him and they came, he ran, she had broken her arm, she'd broken her clavicle, her cheek was busted and the police came because they called the police, you know, so she didn't even go to call the police. She was just trauma. I saw her, it was traumatized, totally traumatized. Um, But if you think about that number, just that one number, or even the statistics of like how many women have been assaulted, and then you imagine the trauma that happens with that. And then you imagine you have to carry the child of that person in certain states and that you are traumatized and then you're re-traumatized every day of your life because you're, you know, you either give a child up for adoption, which if you're a man and you don't have a uterus, as someone who's had three children, I can tell you, I can't even fathom what that would be like and how that would impact my life. Or you, you take a child and you raise a child and you look in the face possibly of, you know, your rapist every day. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is, and it, this is for kids. I mean, these are for children 13 years old, you know, are still have to carry the child of their rapist in several states. Mm-hmm. This kind of thing um, is trauma inducing. For me, what I think is the most helpful is to figure, I mean, this is just how I cope and everybody has to figure out their own way. Um, I try to think of how I can help. Is there any impact that I can make? And that can be from calling my friend who's a big burly dude and saying, hey, have you ever thought of doing clinic defense? Because like the clinics in New York are going to start being protested so badly because people are going to be coming here from all over to get abortions. So have you thought of doing clinic defense or, you know, bringing cookies to people doing clinic defense or running for office or supporting people who run for office or going on social media and liking every single post where someone says, I think we have the right to choose, you know, there's no right or wrong way, but I think that just doing one or two things every day, just tiny things that are contributing to this swell of outrage over this. I think that when you do, it can help you feel in control, which is why my book has a lot of focus, not just on what's happening, but what can you do? Because, you know, what's happening is, 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 you know, good to know, but the next step is like, how do you, what do you do? And for me, I feel much better and more in control when I feel that way. And also just letting yourself feel all the feelings. I mean, I'm extremely pissed off. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm, you know, I'm unbelievably ragefully angry and, um, you know, women aren't told they're allowed to be angry, but I I cannot tell you my level of fury on this and that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very intense few days. Very sad, but yes, I'm very very confident. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry. I'm just going to say I'm very confident in women, how strong we are and how powerful we are that we'll fight. We'll get there. 
Yeah. And I see an overwhelming number of men on my TikTok feed. I'm on TikTok. I have over 250,000 followers on TikTok. Amazing. I don't know how that happened to me, <laughs> but, um, but I, I see a lot of men going on and saying, you know, we stand by you. We believe in you. And, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I don't think these men have a clue what that means. Right. But it means so much. It means everything. And, you know, we all need to take care of each other and have each other's back in every possible way. And so to have so many men, and I think it's because they're thinking of their daughters and they're thinking, wow, if my daughter was assaulted, she would have to carry that child. I'd lose my mind. Yeah. And so I think that's when men are starting to go, this is really not okay. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot. That could be a whole nother podcast, a whole nother topic. (laughs) For sure. For sure. I I am all over it on on TikTok. I actually have, you know, my background is, is, you know, very intersectional. So I have a lot of background in political science and I know a bit about the law and it's, it's been fascinating watching the reaction of people. Really interesting. I gotta, I try to not post political things on my page, but this time I just, I couldn't help it. I had to do it. And I was actually scared too, because, you know, I, most of the people that follow me is very male dominated again. And mm-hmm. because it's the cigar industry and it was really, it took me a minute to post it, but I'm so glad I did. And I saved and it and I made response? it a highlight. I didn't, I only got good responses in my messages, but I didn't get very many. So I have a feeling people just didn't want to say stuff, but it was good. I got a lot of great messages from awesome people. It was really good. I think that one thing this has taught women, I hope, is that there's no such thing as being apolitical because your personal is political. The political will get you whether you're political or not. So you have to engage. Because you can't, I mean, you know, if you stay on the sidelines, someone will make your decisions for you. That's so true. Yeah. So getting back into your book a little bit, explain what claiming space means. And when was Uh, the first time that you realized that you claimed space? I don't think there was a first. That'd be cool, like in a movie. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh my God, I just did it. Um, But it wasn't really like that. It's really a process and it's like a a state of mindfulness. Um, The claim space is to live the life of your choosing unapologetically and bravely. And um, Nancy back. Sorry. Is okay. I thought that I'd turn on my do not disturb, but I did not. Um, So I apologize for that. Um, so yeah, I, so to claim space is to live the life of your, that's my aunt. And I'm sure she's calling about, uh, so she's calling about Roe being overturned. Um, so, uh, to to claim space is to live the life of your choosing unapologetically and bravely. And to me, bravery isn't the absence of fear. Mm -hmm. Bravery is being terrified and doing what you need to do anyway. That's bravery. And, um, there are five aspects to claiming space. I was looking for that one thing, like what is it that makes a woman able to claim space? I need to know the thing, the one thing. And then I realized there wasn't one thing. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Life is never that simple. It was five things. And so those five things are claiming space with your physicality and your voice, 
claiming space um, together. So, you know, supporting other women, women who claim space really well do that. Claiming space by making sure you're not seeding space. So we all have our baggage that makes us want to be small and learning what that baggage is and like, you know, recycling some of it, putting some in the garbage. And then some of it, you just have to carry your whole life, but at least you know it's there so you don't respond to it. Anyone who said you can get rid of all your baggage is lying, but at least you can kind of like see it and be like, hmm, I'm not gonna let you control me. Um, and then uh, claiming space, safety in any space, learning how to shut down aggressors. And finally, or when to leave a space if it's too unsafe. And finally, um, claiming space intersectionally, which means understanding that if you're only claiming space for yourself and people who look like you, you're not really claiming space. And women who are very empowered tended to hang out with women who didn't exclusively look like them. Th mm -hmm. Those women tended to be much, and, and I think it's because uh, interracial uh, friendships in particular challenge you. And so you have to learn to examine yourself really well. And when you examine yourself, um, you're much less likely to go into victim mode and you're much more likely to claim your space. Exactly, yeah. What struggles come with claiming space? <laughs> That's such a good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. I love it. Um, well, I think, I think that in the short run, doing the right thing by yourself and others is a huge pain in the ass. I mean, it just is. It's so much easier sometimes just to do what's easy, yeah. you know, and because why do you want to rock the boat? But in the long run, doing what's right for yourself and others, I think is incredibly rewarding. When you do claim space, you are swimming against a, a tie. You're swimming against a society that tells women and rewards them for playing small. I mean, if you think about how little girls stand, if you ever seen a little girl who stands with her toes pointed together, mm -hmm. you know, because she can't quite balance and she's got her knees out and her toes are pointed. And then you look at women who are posing for pictures and their toes are pointed together. And it's one of the least steady positions you can possibly be in. Pointing your toes together throws your entire balance off. But we reward women for standing like little girls and off balance, small, not taking too much space. And so when you start to do that, people don't always feel comfortable. Um, and I think you have to just be okay with the fact that the people you want around you the quality people are the people who want you as your most fully realized self. But you may lose people because especially if someone isn't claiming their space, you claiming your space will make them realize they're not. And one of the responses is, wow, that's cool. What are you doing? How can I do that? And the other is, you're different. You're weird. I'm, you know, I don't like the way you are in space now. I don't like the way you're claiming space. And you can lose, you can lose people. Uh, and, and that can be very, very difficult. But I think that the people you end up with are phenomenal. Yeah, for sure. So what so do you think, yeah. which step is the hardest to accomplish, you think, in your five steps or that you've heard from others or from yourself? I think it's different for everybody. Some people start to claim space with their physicality and voice and everything transforms for them. And then suddenly, you know, the other stuff isn't so hard. For me, the hardest thing is um, race, issues of race, because mm -hmm. I am very committed to all humanity being treated fairly and justly. I think that the world will be better when we all listen to each other, hear each other, respect each other, have the same opportunities. But I'm a white person 
I breathe in racism, just like I breathe in sexism, and I exhale it sometimes on people. And it's painful when you do that. It's sad and it's hard. Um, and it's a state of constant mindfulness to not get defensive. So that's hard for me. I think that's my challenge. But I, what I always tell people, what I remind myself is, you know, if a guy comes up and like slaps my butt and I'm like, Hey, I don't like you doing that ever. You know, let's say maybe they slap it, but like, they, they're like, I didn't mean it. I brushed against it. I don't know. You know, I was like, I don't want you to do that. You can't do that. And they say, you know, well, let me explain why I did it. Like you were walking toward my hand and like, or whatever, <laughs> you know, or like it was just for fun or I meant to hit your thigh, but I hit your butt, like, or whatever. I don't care why they did. I really don't care. I just want to hear them be like, oh man, I didn't realize that that would upset you so much. I will never do that again. I am so sorry. That's all I need to hear. And then I'm like, cool, thanks. Let's move on. Don't ever do that again. You know, now granted, if they really saw my ass hard, maybe not the best example, but let's say it's like a questionable touch that isn't quite, you know, but it's something you just like, oh, that's a little too much. Um, if a guy saw my ass, I'd probably be like, eh. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but if they're doing something or let's say they're interrupting you constantly and they never mm. let you talk <laughs> and, you know, you're trying to get a word in and you can't, then you say, listen, I'd rather you not do that. And they say, I wasn't interrupting. You were interrupting, you know, but that's so front. You just want to hear them say, oh, cool. Thanks. I didn't know I was interrupting. So I try to apply that same standard to race. So if someone says to me, you know, what you just said was a little insensitive, I try not to be like, well, let me explain because the reason that men explain and the reason that we explain is because we feel bad and we just want to explain that we didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. And I always have to remind myself that it doesn't matter if I didn't mean it. That's not what the person's looking for. What they're looking for is empathy and a pledge to not do it again. And that's, that's how I sort of get through that struggle for myself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I loved that in your book when you're talking about interrupting because, oh my gosh, it's almost comical how much it happens in a cigar lounge just you're because you're just with a group of guys it's rare that you find a woman there and oh my gosh it is like I wish I video recorded it or just audio recorded it. it is just it's comical how much it happens the whole time I'm sitting there I'm just like uh 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 <laughs> My recommendation, if you want to hear it um, yes. in that situation, yeah, my recommendation is to find, if there are any allies in the room, any at all, go to those men and be like, hey, I don't know if you've noticed I'm getting interrupted quite a lot. Um, when that happens, can would you mind helping me? Because I find that men respond better to that. And then you can literally teach them, directly instruct them how to do it. So you can say, I do this sometimes when I'm working with black women and they're getting interrupted by white people. What I usually say is like, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I actually really wanted to hear what Jane had to say. Can I just hear that first? You know, I don't yell at the person. I don't shame them. I'm just like, wait, I'm sorry. I actually, I don't think Jane was finished. I'm really interested to hear what she has to say. And if you can teach them to say that for you, then, you know, what I find is, well, the research shows that people respond more to people in their own group than the targeted group. So that might be a way to help out. Yeah, for sure. I love that. That's perfect. I have a question like about claiming friendship space with men because there's so many interesting and cool men that I meet in a cigar lounge, but it's so hard to claim that friendship space without them thinking that something else is going to happen. Right. I wonder if you have any 
advice on how to just claim that friendship space without actually having to say, I don't want you. (laughs) Right, right. Um, I mean, I don't know. That's a really good question. My best friend is a man. So, um, I mean, I call him my little brother. He calls me him, my big sister, you know, I mean, he is, that's the guy I was talking about, Alec. And he's, he's just, he's truly one of the most amazing human beings on the face of the earth. And he's also very sensitive. And, you know, he, I think that there's just an understanding between us that like, that's not where the, what this is. And he's noticed the body language, noticed the cues. Now, granted, he actually became my friend when we were, when I was married, but even after I was married, you know, it was just, we continued to be friends. And um, I think, first of all, I think that a lot of men will tune into your energy. So if you really put out energy with really good boundaries, that helps. But sometimes, I mean, look, I had a guy I had a huge crush on, huge. And I, after I was divorced, I was like, hey, you want to do this? Because it'd be cool. <laughs> and he, like, he was like, you know what? I just don't want to mess up our friendship. And I don't think so. And I was like, extra bummer for me. And then we right. kept being friends, you know? So, I mean, if someone asks you, and they want that, that's, I think it's totally fair for people to ask. And it's totally fair for you to say no. And it's hopefully both people can act like adults and realize that like, just because you're not having sex with a person doesn't mean you can't get a lot out of that relationship. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that those kind of friendships are really important because just like interracial friendships, it helps us all understand each other better. I mean, Alec teaches me a lot about what men are thinking all the time. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even think about that. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That's good advice. So there's also, there's a lot of powerful women in this industry because they've had to be, you have to work your way up. You have to be that powerful and they have claimed space, even if they don't realize that that's what they've done. How would you recommend claiming your own space with these powerful women or creating space for the both of you? or for multiple women? Yeah, I mean, there is a phenomenon I talk about in my book called Fighting for Your Spot on the Bottom. And what it is is when powerful women go after each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this feeling of scarcity, like, oh my God, there aren't, um, there's no room for a lot of us. So if one person comes into this group, I have to kick them out. So those people can be tough. They can become anti-mentors and that's really, really challenging. Um, and there are a lot of strategies for dealing with anti-mentors. But in terms of just making those connections, I think it's just, you know, forging, forging friendships, just forging friendships. And if they know more than you, people, I mean, this is just a general advice. People love to talk about their subject matter expertise. Yeah. They love learn. learn yeah. From it. They love it. So if you say, Hey, you, you're, you've done more than me and you know, you're amazing. And can I take you out for lunch and just hear your stories. I'm really interested and you're amazing. And I'd love to, you know, just like have a day we hang out. And then if they say yes, then if they like it, maybe you'll do it again and you'll do it again. I think um, having a old girls network is actually really important. It's very hard to penetrate the old boys network. It's pretty rock solid. I mean, we can't go into the locker room and chill with them while they're talking at the country club and which is a huge power structure kind of place where people make (laughs) deals and do things. We can't go in there, right? So we are going to be locked out of certain conversations. And right now men still have power, more power than us. 
So I think one of the solutions to that is for women to form their own networks because we can be in the locker room together. And I think we need to create our conversations in the bathroom and lift each other up at absolutely every turn, every possible turn. You know, the the more we do it, the, the stronger we all are. Definitely, yeah. Have you ever felt imposter syndrome? And how oh, God, did yes. you, yeah, how did you <laughs> navigate through it? I struggle with this on and off. Like I know about it and I do the thought work to try to get through it. And for the most part I can, but I have a lot of imposter syndrome. What advice do you have? Well, everybody thinks that they don't deserve a table. I mean, most people think they don't deserve a seat at the big boy table or the big girl table. Like, they're like, I can't be at the grown-up table. I'm the only kid here. Nobody knows. All these grown-ups are here and I'm the kid, you know? Yes. <laughs> and, and someday everyone will find out. I think there are a couple of things you can do. Um, I actually have an exercise which would take a while, so we won't do it here in my book that people find unbelievably powerful. And that can help you for the short-term situations where you have to give a talk. Um, A lot of men have actually read my book and said like, I feel like this should be like a person's guide to claiming space with a focus on women in certain chapters. And I was like, yeah, except for that wouldn't have sold as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But a lot of these things are universal and I do them with all my clients, including men. I have a lot of introverted men, particularly that I work with who are leaders and have to kind of learn how to navigate as an introverted leader. And so I think that exercise can be very, very helpful. Um, But I think the other thing is, and, and this is very different, I think, than a lot of people approach this. I think there's a lot of emphasis, particularly for women, on our feelings. Um, there's a, and, and it's important to know what you feel. If you don't know what you feel, you can't possibly mitigate feelings that maybe aren't going to help you if you respond to them in a reactive way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I talked to a reporter once. This is my favorite story when my book was going to launch. And the reporter was asking me advice on how to deal with power plays and all these things. And at the end, she said, can I tell you something off the record? This is for a huge publication. And I said, sure. And she goes, I love talking to you because you actually gave advice. If one more so-called expert tells me to effing journal, I'm going to effing kill myself. <laughs> she's like, she's yes, like, this is so true. <laughs> right. She was like, if every, every answer I get is like, women should journal. If a man was having a problem, we'd never be like, hey, John, you know, I know you're having trouble with your boss, but why don't you go home and journal? That's a great, like, no one would do that. John would be like, you're insane. I'm looking for advice, you know? So I, I think it's important to feel our feelings and write our journals or whatever we want to do, because that's important. And I think men should journal too. But I think the next step is be like, okay, I'm going to be brave now. I don't feel like I deserve to be at this table, but my brain knows that I do. So I'm just going to sit with this discomfort and do the thing anyway. Yeah. I'm just going to do it anyway. That I'm going to be brave. And bravery to me is the crux of all claiming space, all standing up to injustice, because injustice is by its very nature uncomfortable to fight against because it is on its face unjust. And so you have to deal with unfairness. And you just have to realize you're going to be uncomfortable. And anything I've ever done in my life, I've been scared to death. Mm-hmm. And I just did it anyway. Yes. And I think that's what we need to do is, you know, yeah, imposter syndrome sucks, but everybody has it. And the people who do best are the ones that are like, hey, what's up, imposter syndrome? Good to see you. I'm ignoring you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what I just 
remade a TikTok from this girl. She was like, people ask me how I get over the fear of like speaking to people or something like that. And she's like, I don't, I just do it scared. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually like bravery, I mean, nerves are, I think one of the best tools you can possibly have for a public speaker. I talk about this all the time. Nerves are the best because they basically teach you how to sit there and, you know, you can actually use them and harness them to give energy to a situation. I mean, if I wasn't nervous before public appearances, I would quit because it would mean I didn't care anymore. Nerves are there to tell us we care and we can use them to like up our energy and our performance and our talks or whatever. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. So you mentioned anti-mentor earlier. I loved that part of the book explaining what it meant and realizing how many not how many, I guess, but the anti-mentors in my life. Can you explain to everybody what an anti-mentor is and how to recognize that person in your life? Yeah, that is a chapter that has, there's no distinction in gender in terms of how people feel about it. Everybody's like, yep, had one of those. (laughs) Had an anti-mentor. True. Um, Anti-mentors are people who should be your greatest cheerleaders. But instead, they leave you feeling diminished and small. They usually, it's a funny, that was my first viral video on TikTok. It wasn't terribly viral. Now I've had much bigger ones, but it, I got like almost 100,000 views. And I was so excited. Um, yeah, it was my first, I was like, yeah. Um, but, you know, basically anti-mentors are people who you've known for a long time, usually, or they are used to you in a weaker place. So they kind of see you as a person that you are not now. They're actually more comfortable with you when you're feeling weak and small. They tend to brag about your accomplishments to other people, but not to you. And they're really kind sometimes to other people, but not to you. So you feel like, what's wrong with me? Um, I call them emotional snipers. So you, you know, you're with an anti-mentor and you walk away and you're like, why am I why am I bleeding? Like what (laughs) happened? Um, They don't usually just hit you right on. They go up in the tower and they know just where to hit you in your soft spot, but you, it's almost hard to know what's happening when it's happening. And they're not, a lot of people say, well, are they narcissists? A lot of, I'd say almost all narcissists have the potential to be anti-mentors, but not all anti-mentors are narcissists because anti-mentors can also be people who've been in really intergenerational toxic family systems. And so they're just carrying on what their parent did to them or people who, for some reason you trigger them, you know, whatever, or people who in certain aspects of their lives are just crappy. They're crappy bosses, but they're much better at home because they don't have to be a boss. So it's really the key to anti-mentors is to give up on the idea that they will ever stop being anti-mentors Yeah, ever. Um, and then basically learn how to shut it down or learn how to live with it or walk away from them. And there, yeah, and I give yeah. strategies in the book, concrete strategies on how to shut it down, because I think, um, you know, I'm all about like, how do you fix it? Not just what is it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It just happened after I read your book, I called my anti-mentor and they were like, I've been listening to your podcast. It's so great. You've been doing so good and blah, blah, blah. And then there was the, but, but you should do this. You should add this. You should do this instead. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
Yep. And I you're really, like, oh, I, I just read about you. Exactly. <laughs> I was just reading about you. You are on message. Oh, oh. It's so hard, though, when you realize who it is. They're oh, so, so close hard. to you. I mean. So hard. Especially when it's a parent. Yeah. It's just the absolute worst. I had a family member who I really, my one of my anti-mentors, um, my book hit number one. And my parent was like, well, how much are you making right now? And I was like, dad, I'm not, you know, actually this was my dad, this is my uncle. Um, my dad was the one who gave me a hard time about my cover, but he is definitely not my anti-mentor. I was like, uncle so-and-so, not going to say his name because I don't want to call him out. Um, I said, you know what? I'm not making any money right now because we're in a pandemic and I can't get a speaking gig to save my life because everything has shut down and nothing is, re- at that point, nothing was remote. But my book had hit number one. And my uncle says to me, don't worry, one day you'll grab that brass ring. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I have a best-selling book. Like, I already have the ring. I'm in a pandemic. Like, are you holding this against me? <laughs> like, no one's doing remote work yet. And it was just so funny because I was like, I actually called my parents, my dad and my stepmom. And I was like, I don't know what to do about uncles. So when they were like, He's never going to change, do the thing. But I will say, because I mentioned my dad, the distinction of an anti-mentor is like parents can say dumb things. So when I had my book cover, my father said to me, um, how come you had to spread out so much? So (laughs) uh, yeah, he's like, you're such a, this is a picture. Yeah, this is a picture of the book. Yeah, we both have it. And he says, Eliza, you're such a beautiful woman. Why did you, but did you have to spread out like that? And I said to my dad, I know. It was so funny. And this cover is designed by one of the most famous cover designers in the industry. She has done tons wow. of Pulitzer Prize winners. She did Untamed. I mean, she's just incredible. And um, and he said that to me and I said, and I used the anti-mentor tactic, which was just like not engaging in that battle. And I said, no, dad, I didn't have to. I chose to. There you go. And he was like, oh, I guess I just don't understand it. I guess I'm just older. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. That's the difference between an anti-mentor and a dad being 70 or 80, you know? Right. My my dad basically was like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm just not with the times. Maybe I'm used to women saying differently. Cool. You know, because everybody can be messy and make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard you're not doing this in the book for everyone just listening and hasn't seen it, but <laughs> I've heard to sit like a man, spread your legs out, sit like a man, and you feel so much more like powerful in a room. And I notice if I people are interrupting me in a cigar lounge or anything, I uncross my legs and I like sit up like this. And it yeah. I feel so much more powerful in that I can talk, which is sad but that helps and mirroring helps a lot as well mirroring yeah explain that a little bit a mirroring is just basically mirroring the orientation of somebody's body so you know if you're back like this I'm not going to be in like this if you're in like this I'm not going to be back like this you know it what they found is if you sort of mirror the if the person the person's posture just a little you're much more likely to win a negotiation I think you're actually much more likely to win any kind of communication situation Mm -hmm. because you basically what you do is you're able 
you're, you're, te- you're basically saying I'm on par with you. And when people feel you're on par with them, they tend to listen to you more. So I would guess that when you do that and you move your body like that, you might be mirroring somebody in the room. Yeah. You know, okay. it's very powerful. Right. Yeah. Right. Highly recommended. I have a whole thing on that in my book on, on how to mirror. We did not have time to get an illustration for that, which I'm really bummed about, but, um, but it's, it's a great, it's really important. Right. Yeah. Super helpful. Super helpful. Um, how have you built confidence and resiliency over the course of your career? Hmm, that's a great question. Boy, you have great questions. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think doing the same thing for a long time makes you a subject matter expert. You just get better at it. You know, like if you were to try to teach me about cigars, I'd feel very insecure because I don't know a damn thing about cigars. (laughs) I don't understand. There's a lot to learn, you know. So I think um, the way that you build confidence in many ways is doing what you love. Because when you do what you love, you want to do it more. And the more you do something, the better you get at it. You know, so do what you love and the confidence thing becomes less important. Uh, and then the other thing is that when I'm not confident, again, I just, I just, I'm like, oh, cool. There's me not being confident. I'm doing the thing. I mean, no, everyone told me my book would not get published. <laughs> everyone told me my book would not become a bestseller because, you know, last year in uh, the book scan had over 1.5 million books that were scanned and less than 1% of them sold more than 5,000 copies. Wow. So books just don't sell anymore. And so everybody was like, why would your book sell? And I was like, cause I am insane. <laughs> every podcast every appearance everything because I believe in this book and um I was right you know should exactly so I think yeah I mean we actually had a big battle with my publisher about whether we should do hardcover and I was like we got to do hardcover and they were just like no one's going to buy hardcover we don't do hardcover for first releases for new authors blah 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 and I was like do hardcover you're gonna sell them And they just basically were like, you better. And I was like, I will 100% sell these books. In my head, I'm like, oh God, what if they do hardcover and no one buys the book? (laughs) I will go, I will be so, it'll be awful. But then I just, I just did it anyway. And I was like, I'm just going to make it happen. People will buy the book. And, you know, but there was definitely some risk and insecurity there, but I just did it anyway. So, you know, that's sort of been my motto with everything is just, Okay, so you feel bad. That's an important feeling to acknowledge. Keep going. Yeah, good. How did you feel like, or when did you feel like you had all of the information you needed to create this book? Oh, I definitely didn't. (laughs) (laughs) There's more to it for sure. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, you know, what what I did is I got all of the different things I want to talk about I put them on my kitchen counter, which is huge. I organized them and then I started writing it. And um, it was really interesting uh, because I just realized in certain parts, like, oh crap, I got to do some research on this. I got to do more research on that. And so, because I didn't want to do a ton of research on everything until I knew what I was going to be writing about because I had so many things, we had to narrow them down. Uh, but I just did a ton of research and I interviewed a ton of subject matter experts 
And I just would keep working until that chapter was done. So it was not like I got everything together and was like, now I have the information for the book. It was more organic process of, okay, so now I'm going to this chapter. Wow, I really should talk to a subject matter expert on this. And I was really lucky and probably a little bit um, (laughs) pushy, but I just (laughs) was able to talk to a bunch of very just phenomenal women who are experts in their fields who were able to round out a lot of the chapters and share their research with me and things like that. Like um, there's a woman who uh, Dolly Chug, I think you pronounce her last name, but it's C-H-O-U-G-H, I think. And she's just wonderful. She does a thing about being goodish. She has a Ted talk on being a goodish person. I never, she has a huge book. I never thought in a million years that her book, that she would give me a quote and she did. You know, That's so incredible. you just got to Yeah, it was really, I was like, oh my God, I got a quote from her. She's incredible. So yeah. that was exciting. Who's really a strong exciting. woman influence in your life? Hmm. Besides her. <laughs> Besides her, yeah. Um, no, I, I think for me, actually, my, I have several, um, there are lots of different kinds of mentors, which I wasn't able to get into in the book. But one of them is like a mentor who you don't know, but is a mentor anyway. Like for some Mm. people, Jesus Christ is their mentor. You know, they don't know Jesus Christ, but the teaching of Jesus Christ like mentors them and teach, you know, informs their life. Um, For me, Maya Angelou is huge. Mm. Um, She, when I read, I know why the cage bird sings, I just, it was everything to me. And then I read her book of poetry. I know why the cage bird sings. And I read all her books and, you know, there was something about her strength and her ability to be knocked down and get back up again that changed my life. Um, so that was really important for me. And, um, and then I had a big sister, Alice Green, uh, in the big sister, big brother program. And oh, cool. She was amazing. I actually ended up working for the Big Sister Big Brother program years later. And I did some podcasts with her when I was launching the book. But she was just so one of the things that happened to me, my mother was actually accused of class A felony for kidnapping me. And I was kidnapped several times. One of the times we went across, and I talk about this in my TED talk, we went across the country by truck from truck stop to truck stop from New York to California mm-hmm. and um uh hitchhiking. And you know, so when Alice finally got to me, I was a very scared little girl and I did not want to go anywhere. I did not want to do anything. I wanted to sit on the floor and not leave my house. And she came in the room and in her family, she was from this big Irish family. If you wanted to help someone, you did a thing with them. You took them to a park, you took them here. And so she sat down with me and she's like, Hey, I have all these ideas of what we can do. And I said to her, I just want to color. And this long hair, I used to hide behind this curtain of hair. And she said, okay. And she sat with me and talked with me for like three hours and we colored. I mean, what an example of like meeting someone where they're at, literally got on the floor with me and met me where I was at. And she saw me once a week, every day when I had my accident, she got there before my parents. You know, she was at my wedding. I called her when I was getting a divorce she's, she's an angel walking among human beings. And, um, it's people like her who gave so much to me. And I have many women who've given a lot to me that made me real. My stepmother, uh, one of my teachers when I was in elementary school that I just realized the impact 
you can change, you know, a lot of people say, well, your story is very tragic. And it's about how like one life, you know, how one person overcame so much. And I always say, it's not that at all. My story is about how you can change the life of one person. That's what it's about. That's because my life was changed by these wonderful women. And I would not be here sitting in front of you if I didn't know them. So the, the, you know, if you, if you know the big brother, big sister program, I highly recommend you be a big brother, big sister. It is a light. Alice always says she got more of the out of it than I did. I don't think that's true, but <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful relationship and you can change a life forever. Wow. That's incredible. I yeah, definitely want to do that. You should. You'll change a life. You'll change we'll a life forever. That. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's an hour a day, you know, an hour a week. I mean, it's really, you meet the kid, you take him out, talk to him, whatever. I mean, it could be two to three hours a week, but it's, such a small investment for such a huge impact. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Let's see. Do you still have some time? I have a little more time. Okay, cool. So what's one thing you know now and about women and work that you'd wish you'd known earlier in your career and your life? Um, I think that the idea that people are going sometimes going to tell you, they're going to say they're going to help you with things that you might not need help with. You might be coddled a little more than maybe you need. And it feels really good when someone does that, but it's really important to make sure you can say you can do it yourself Mm -hmm. Um, or you don't need the help if you didn't ask for it. Um, I had a really dear student of mine. I love him who was, uh, in, on wall street on an internship. And he said to me, Oh, this, you know, this woman, she's just, she was the worst on the team. She was the only woman. She was awful and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, um, well, what happened when she was having trouble? Whenever you would have her do something, what happened? He's like, Oh, we would just always jump in and do it for her. And I said, well, does that always happen? He said, yeah. And I said, so if you always did it for her, how did you expect her to ever learn how to do it herself? If you, from the, from the start, did you ever give her a chance to fail? And he was like, no. And I said, well, did they give you a chance to fail? And he's like, actually, like, yeah, <laughs> I did. I, I kind of, like, they just throw stuff at me. And if I said I couldn't do it, they'd be like, just do it. And I, I think that you know, women are infinitely talented. So are men. We're all human beings are amazing and brilliant and can learn a lot. And, you know, don't let yourself off the hook and think you're less capable than you are. You're infinitely capable and you can do it. So, you know, don't, don't let the messages in your head rattling around telling you, you can't uh, put you in a place of learned helplessness, you know, just do it. Definitely. Love it. So what do you think needs to change in the next 10 years with women empowerment and feminism? What needs to change? Um, well, I, that's such a broad question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that white women need to make more of an effort to pull in women of color to the movement and to make sure that they are not having the women of color stand behind them, but in front of them and beside them. Because we've had a really good run. <laughs> we've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> And we really need to, you know, not allow, but, you know, step back and make sure that we are learning from our sisters of color. I mean, the abortion debate is a great example. Women, black women have had forced sterilization. 
You know, mm-hmm. when they were enslaved people, they had no control over their bodily autonomy. A lot of black women are like, yeah, historically we've dealt with this. Um, black women have less access to birth control now. They have less access to better healthcare. I mean, they have dealt with a lot of these things um, more than white women. And they've been sort of warning us this is happening and we haven't really heard it. Um, and if we'd heard it, it's similar to anti-black violence, like black mothers have been saying for years, you know, guns kill people. My baby died of this gun violence and we didn't listen and now our children are dying. So I, I think, you know, listening to women of color is incredibly important and making sure that they are leaders, not just, you know, in, in the movement. Um, and then I think women need to run for office. Um, they need to run for office, mm-hmm. you know, we we have the, and then finally we need to just support each other in every possible way in every possible turn um because we we are half the population over half the population you know we can do anything if we work together and yeah, i think yeah. it's kind of men have been in charge for a long time and i think that's great there have been some really amazing things they've done and they've done some things that are not so great but i think it's time for women to at least have 50 percent of the responsibility for running the world definitely i agree what are ways that you stay grounded and take care of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're going to end on that note, it's not that positive. Um, <laughs> Come on. Um, I'm not particularly good at taking care of myself. It's kind of one of my weaknesses. Uh, I get so interested in things and I am more interested in doing that. But I, I, the one thing I do do is I exercise every single day. I exercise yes. for at least an hour and a half every day. I do weightlifting for an hour and a half and then I go on my bike. And um, I, if I don't do that, first of all, I'm kind of a horrible person. <laughs> I'm crabby and I'm just not really fit for human consumption. So I'm sparing the world from me when I exercise. <laughs> yeah. um, but I also have ADHD. It helps me with that. I have a head injury. Research shows mm-hmm. that you, when you exercise, it helps with that. Um, and so I have all kinds of reasons why I have to, I still have a connective tissue thing that means I really do have to stay in shape. So, um, that's really, really important for me. And I think the feeling of strength and being strong for me as a woman, uh, helps me just feel like I can do things. I mean, my, my boyfriend who is an amazing man, um, (laughs) is six, three, he's a very big burly dude. Um, and whenever I, he lives in a five-story walk-up on the Lower East Side of New York because he loves a good view. So, of course, he had to get a walk-up because, you know, a good view often is very expensive. So, you can compromise yeah. a good walk-up. So, <laughs> I always go up with these huge, heavy suitcases and I'm, like, walking up. And, you know, the first time I came over, he's like, oh, you want me to carry that for you? And I was like, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt so good. And he was like, wow, you're strong. And I was like, damn right I am. So, you know, (laughs) I I think sometimes feeling strong on the outside can help you feel strong on the inside. Um, I think men have known this for years. A lot of men who work out makes them feel stronger. Um, And also good posture, you know, it helps you with your posture if you do weight training. So I'm a big fan of women lifting weights, not to get all burly. I mean, some women like that and that's cool. That's not my thing, but just to feel strong, you know, to feel strong in a world that wants you not to be sometimes. Gotcha. Exactly. But I could do a lot more self-care. I should meditate more. (laughs) You know, (laughs) fighting the good fight is self-care. You're doing it. You're out here. You wrote this book. You're fighting for what's right. That is a form of self-care. 
makes me feel better because yeah. I feel like at least I'm doing something. Yes. <laughs> you know, in a crazy world, feeling like you're trying to make it a little better yeah. is a big deal, and I think. I know I appreciate it. So I'm sure so many other people appreciate it, especially this book. I'm so glad you wrote this book. It was It was a really life-changing book was so helpful in so many ways and really want to thank you for it honestly thank you you know um I I did I launched the book during the pandemic so I didn't really get to talk to a lot of people I would go and do these book talks where they'd be cyber talks and when it was over they'd say and we thank you Liza for being here so it's always and I'm like wait I want to hear what people have to say so um I I it's really great to hear that. I hear that a lot now online um, through TikTok because my following on TikTok, but it's, it's just really nice when you have this one-on-one with someone and they can, when they tell you that, because, you know, I want it to help people. That's why I wrote it. You know, I, I, I put it on every single TikTok, almost every TikTok I do. I'm like, and here's my book. And someone was like, you're just trying to sell your book. And I was like, yes. Yeah. Everyone needs <laughs> to read it. Absolutely <laughs> correct. That's why Very I wrote important. it. People will read it. Yes. <laughs> so good call on that one, friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've, I've written in it. I hope you don't mind. And highlighted love and it. circled and everything. Love I it. love this. Oh, my God. I love so that so good. much. I love that. I, I'm like desperate to look at your book and know what you highlighted. That's great. <laughs> I'll show you. I'll show you. <laughs> keep highlighting. Keep doggy ear. Just do it. And I will. One thing I will say though, this is my advocacy for people who write books. So authors get about a dollar a book. We get very little per book. And wow. you don't make money off your book. You make money off the speaking from your book. Okay. Um, so you write the book because you love it, not because you're trying to make money. But the way you get speaking gigs is by people buying your book. So your ranking is good. So my, my heartfelt uh, request to everyone about every book ever, not just my book, it's the one thing that you should not do used, buy the book. I hear sometimes people being like, I loved your book, so I pass it on to my friend who passed it on to her friend who passed it on to her friend. I'm like, that's like taking someone's music and like passing the tape around. I understand you're doing that, but like support the musician. So you know, yes. support, support people, write books and buy the book. And if you're going to give it to a friend, don't loan it, buy them a copy of the book. It helps authors more than I can possibly express in words. All of us, not just me. Definitely. Yes. I'm a huge book nerd. My last podcast was, was with another book nerd and we talked all things books. And then we talked a little bit about cigars. We kind of forgot that we were smoking cigars. So we talked all books. So yeah. definitely I agree with supporting your authors. Buy the yes. books. It's buy so important. Books. Buy books. Buy the audiobook, buy the Kindle, buy the hardcover, whatever works for you, but buy it. Worth it. Yep. So where can everybody find you on social media, TikTok? Where can they find your book? Yep. Um, you can find me on TikTok. I um, have a pretty big following now. Uh, I have 250,000 followers-ish. Um, so that's, that's one place you can find me. Um, you can, if you do find me, please, I love it when people say, I heard you on XY podcast, cause it's just so much fun. So shout out. And also it helps you, it helps shout out to your podcast. So please, you know, if you do see me, make sure you tag, um, this, do you have a podcast handle or just your own handle on TikTok? On TikTok? Yeah. It's just ashes with ash. 
Yeah. So, so tag ashes with ash when you, Yay. when you say, you know me, cause then it helps both of us. Um, and I'm not all about that. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter, which is an embarrassment because I'm terrible at Twitter. Yeah, too, um, but you can theoretically find me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I'm just starting kind of to do more Instagram. And you can find me on my personal page on Facebook. There's actually an author page on Facebook, but it is, um, I'm locked out of it. So it's completely useless and just sitting there looking sad. So, um, so that you can find me there. You can also find me on my website. I'm working on, um, doing more newsletters and giving exclusive content on my website. And actually I am thinking of writing my autobiography and well, I am going to be writing it. And if you go to my work, yeah, if you go to my website, you actually have access to a chapter, which I think is one of the more powerful chapters in my book about my mom and everyone who's written, read it has loved it. So you have access to kind of some exclusive content if you, if you go to my website. So definitely, if you're interested, join my website. I don't bombard you. In fact, I don't send out loose newsletters enough, but you will get occasional updates. Perfect. Amazing. So you're everywhere. That's great. <laughs> yes. And actually that's elizavancourt.com. Everything is under Eliza Van Court. So, Perfect. and there's no U in court. Everyone puts a U. Oh, okay. gotcha. C-O-R-T. Okay. Gotcha. C-O-R-T. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, perfect. Thank you so much again for doing this with me. I was kind of geeking out a little bit. I was so excited because I was so in love with this book. I've been talking to everybody about it. My mom bought it. It's been, I was so excited to talk to you. This has been absolutely perfect. Oh, I love that. Thank you for spreading the word. That's why the book's going out there. It's because people are telling their friends about it. And so thank you so much. And this is really fun. And I love what you're doing. It's great. It's wonderful. I mean, you know, we need more women going into fields that they're not usually in. And I think we need more men going into fields that women dominate. I think we all need to kind of do all the things. I think it makes society... Society is like a bird, and if one wing is too strong, it doesn't fly right. So, we want the bird to fly right. Exactly, exactly. Well, perfect. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so, so, so much, Eliza. What a great and important conversation. Thank you again for writing this book and sharing it with the world. It's been such an important and meaningful inspiration in my life, and I know it will be for others and already is for those who have read it. And thank you everyone for listening. Go follow Eliza on TikTok and her other platforms to stay in touch and keep up with when her next book will be released. I cannot wait. Thank you again. I'll talk to you soon.